Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, this is David Hepworth. Welcome to the Word Podcast. Sorry for the interruptions in the uh, service over what's laughably called the summer. Uh, But coming up in a packed podcast, we've got a look at whether concert tickets are about to get cheaper. What on earth might be causing this noise? And talking to the man behind our record of the month, Jungle Blues by C.W. Stone King. I studied evil, I can't deny it. Was a hoodoo charm called he loved me or die. Some fingernail, a piece of her dress. A pocket there, devil I will relate the piteous consequence of my mistake. All enslaved to passing desire, making these dreaded love me or die. Conceived in 1928, delivered in the year 2010, the extraordinary sound of C.W. Stone King from his album Jungle Blues of which more later. I'm David Hepworth, this is The Word Podcast. I'm joined in the pod by Fraser Lurie. Hello, Hello Fraser. everyone. And uh, we, we haven't been able to keep a, up a continuous, uninterrupted service over the summer months because obviously everybody's jetting off to their Tuscan villas. Exactly, yes. Uh, and very much enjoying the weather this week uh, in the lead-up to, um, to Reading. Are you, are you going? Thank you, my lucky stars. I'm not going. You know, I think I think ready to be fair is mainly for kind of 16 year olds who don't who don't make any plans for the weather at all. Is no, that right? when I went when I was 16, that's exactly what I did. I made no plans. You didn't. And, you didn't take a sleeping bag, did you? No, it was, I thought it was going to be the middle of summer and therefore warm. And Reading is not warm at night; it's bitingly cold. So you thought you were just going to you're going to roll a blanket on the ground and you'd be? No, absolutely... I had a tent. I had a tent, which I then proceeded to burn down by lighting a fire in the mouth of it to, to try and keep warm. But anyway, everybody's learned better now, haven't they? You know, so the young people of the year two, 2010 will not be going with any such naive expectations. No, they, they won't have spent all their money on Friday and be living off the Salvation Army soup kitchen for the rest of the weekend like I did. But anyway, your festival-going uh, adventures are a lot more exotic nowadays. Oh, they uh, are, Apart yes. from latitude and things like that. 
but you you've re- returned from your annual visit to the Serbian Trumpet Festival. It you? is. Uh, it, I went before in two thousand and seven, uh, and this is my second visit. It was the fiftieth anniversary of the Gucha Trumpet Festival this which year. Is, now that's the noise that you heard at the beginning of the podcast. Yes, uh, which you just recorded by wandering with your iPhone down down the middle, the yeah, main that, drag of the festival. The, the, is that right? I recorded about two minutes of it, and it took me that long to walk fifty meters. And during that two minutes, you can hear I think seven different brass bands playing. Yes, because there's no sense of sort of stages. Everybody's just playing everywhere, well, right? The whole town is taken over by, by people, A, getting drunk, and B, listening to, to, to brass bands. And the brass bands move from restaurant to restaurant. There's no per- programme or anything, so you'll get end up with four or five bands in the same restaurant playing at once, and it's just... Chaos. So in Serbia, I mean, do they go in for your normal pop music as well? I mean, they if you do, yeah. to go clubbing and so forth, you could do that. Absolutely, yeah. but this is the, the thing I really like about the Serbian trumpet music is that it's also young people's music. Right. They like their pop, but they also like this very traditional Serbian brass band music. Because this is the, the expression of Serbian nationality Absolutely, and yeah. identity, yeah. you know, under under Stalin, Tito, and so forth. Yeah, but I don't think you'd get 800,000 English people turning up to watch a Fairport convention. I do think you were... 800,000 people. Yeah, this is over the course of ten days. Oh, this right, is okay. ten once. So how many at a time? But it's more than Glastonbury, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. in, in total, yes, it, it's more than Glastonbury. It's extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. Well, you've written about it in the next issue of Word, haven't you? Yes, Which I is have. coming out in a couple of weeks' time. And anybody who's particularly interested in... Uh, the whole Serbian trumpet thing. There's actually uh, a radio programme on, on Monday, this coming Monday on the 31st at one thirty in the afternoon on, on Radio 4, where uh, they've been to this self-same festival and uh, recorded the noises as you've heard them and, uh, and considerably more exotic ones and, uh, and tried to get under the surface of, of what drives this absolutely amazing festival. I shall be listening in. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast... A way of life. All right, as promised, our musical guest in uh, this week's pod is uh, C.W. Stone King, who came into the studio only yesterday, straight off a plane from Melbourne in Australia, and uh, talked to Fraser and Mark and myself about his record Jungle Blues and his tour of the UK. He's playing various dates in the UK over the next two weeks. But first of all, he sang Jungle Lullaby. <laughs> Paradise, 
the days are long, it takes jungle lullaby. fantastic sound of the mighty C.W. Stone King, who uh, I saw uh, with Fraser um, yes, only indeed. about two weeks ago at the, at the Borderline, the most extraordinary spectacle. Uh, a trombone, uh, a cornet, a string bass stroke tuba, 
a drummer playing only with brushes, and you wearing, uh, I think, a sort of red bow tie and very ill-fitting uh, baggy old white uh, clothes uh, with, a, with a banjo, and looking rather like sort of CW... Well, not the seat of Stone King, so W.C. Fields, I mean. Like, like C- W.C. Fields. <laughs> not so fat as him, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A slightly thinner version. Yeah. We might have stumbled into a kind of New Orleans uh, funeral march. Amazing music. And today you're wearing, just describe this, this jacket that you have on. This jacket here picked up in uh, Los Angeles. I uh, had it sitting on a shop dummy wearing a bow tie, and uh, I just started wearing all white clothes when I uh, made my jungle record. Because uh, I was trying to get tropical and also had been wearing a black suit for about the last 15 years before that. And I uh, was having trouble finding a good jacket and I saw this one and I tried it on. It was a little tight but I persevered and uh, it's come to uh, fit me all right. And I was back there the next year in Los Angeles and found another identical one. This is actually the second one that I own, but I have two the same. Very good. It's a uh, stripey, uh, it looks like an old... Cricket Wait, blazer you, or a boating blazer, but it it's a in a heavy denim. It's kind of like a cricket blazer for a railroad tramp. It's very hard work. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Slightly scuffed at the edges. Yeah. And uh, and offset by your heavily tattooed hands, which is yes. uh, it's a good combination. So you, uh, when I saw you, I felt, you know, as I did listen to your records, it was as if you'd fallen through a wormhole in time and you'd landed in a pre-war a world, as I say, full of old uh, New Orleans jazz and uh, and, uh, it's very and blues. Yeah. Did they, well, how did how did how did you finish up there, or indeed here? Uh, I was in the old blues since I was uh, about thirteen years old, and uh, I played uh, played traditional blues sort of stuff. Well, uh, you wouldn't really call it traditional, but uh, you know, uh, blues music from the twenties and thirties. Uh, for a long time, and then I uh, sort of had written a few songs over the years, and uh, you know, I got with uh, the woman who's my wife now, and she sort of uh, encouraged me to make this record, which I'd been uh, talking about for a while, and uh, that was my first uh, original record called uh, King Hokum, which uh, kind of pays tribute to a lot of the early blues styles, I guess, in a, in its way. And then, uh, of course, and then I made the uh, Jungle Blues record, which is the one that we're bringing out over here. Because uh, you described one of the descriptions of your music I've seen is, is hokum. How would you, how would you, what would you say hokum is? Uh, in terms of, like, with the music, it's uh, like a tag that they put on some of the sort of blues, I guess, around, like, late 20s till kind of mid-30s. It uh, was usually, like, a bit sort of jazzy sound and kind of that early, real early Chicago, like Tampa Red, sort of a bit of a jazzy thing, double entendre sort of uh, lyrics, you know, usually about sex or something, a lot of sort of uh, vaudeville sort of... Uh, uh, things, you know what I mean? Spoken introductions with sort of comedy and things like that in it. I love that part of your act because when we saw you the other night, you you would uh, introduce a lot of these songs with very very long, very complicated stories. One wonderful one I think about travelling from um, uh, Trinidad to Africa yeah. on, on some kind of uh, mystic sea cruise. Yeah. Where, where do the, I mean, where, where, where do these ideas come from? Uh, that that was the uh, that was uh, this, what happened uh, to actually inspired the uh, Jungle Blues record. But, uh, you know, some of them is uh, 
Most of the stories I tell at shows is uh, about uh, real events, but I uh, try and uh, frame them up a bit nice, you know. Yeah. You don't want to go on and on. So, well, although I do go on and on, I hopefully I'm entertaining at the same time. No, they're, ex- they're enormously entertaining. So, We'd like to be longer. Yes, we would, yes. <laughs> now, so you, you've got a rather unusual background because your parents were American, but you were brought up in Australia and not, yeah. not suburban Australia either. No. You, tell us about that. Uh, I lived uh, up in uh, the Northern Territory, out on an Aboriginal community out there, uh, a place called Papunya. It's out in the desert. And... Uh, that's where I sort of, you know, started uh, getting around. Uh, when I got a little older, we went to Sydney, and uh, that's where I began to play the guitar. Uh, my father and stepfather both played the guitar. So I uh, picked up a bit off them and uh, went on from there with the music pretty much since about the age of 11, kind of. That was what and I your father was an academic, I think, wasn't he? And also, obviously, very uh, a man full of a very decisive man. He was meant to have seen a bumper sticker that said "America, like it or leave it." And he thought, "I'll leave it." Uh, yeah, that's why you moved? Is that he, right? Yeah, he was kind of. He saw a lot of America when he was a kid. His old man was an Air Force Colonel who like uh, ran Air Force bases around the states, and so he spent his childhood uh, living all mostly down around the south, uh, Texas and Florida and uh, Alabama and things, and. Uh, both his parents died when he was 21. That's right. He, uh, Extraordinary. He, he kind of didn't like uh, what was happening in the joint and decided to go somewhere else. Took my mother with him, who was very young. So it's another obvious question, but if you grow up in an uh, Aboriginal community in a place, I think, called Catherine, is that right? That's, that's where I was born. That's where we were, yeah. yeah. Then, then um, you know, you're likely, to, it's a very small population, I think, you're likely to, to not come into contact with a vast amount of popular music, I, I imagine. Yeah, so most of the music I heard when I was a kid was uh, my father had a real big record collection, which he um, brought from the States. So uh, he had lots of stuff. Blues really didn't uh, make up a big part of that collection, but uh, there was a bit of stuff in there, and that's where I first heard it. So you go out and you're playing, uh, you know, alongside, presumably heavily amplified rock groups and so forth. How how does that work when you're turning up, you know, in your blazer Uh, with your National Steel and you're, you know, accompanying musicians? You're playing quite quietly, presumably. Well, uh, you know, uh, when I started to uh, perform solo and uh, trying to... and and doing this, I played in a couple of bands before that. And uh, at the time then, it was... uh, The the old Blues Henry... uh, broken in with the uh, popular music the way it sort of has now. Now there's a lot of uh, bands who've dropped names all the time, like Sunhouse, uh, this and that, and everybody's got a banjo and a one-string guitar. And, um, but back then in Melbourne, it was uh, there wasn't that at all. And the, uh, the people who were into blues were not into anything that I was interested in and uh, definitely not interested in me. Oh, they weren't. <laughs> so, at the time, you know, well, I spent like uh, quite a few years just uh, playing in the street pretty much, and uh, that's uh, that's where I worked a lot of my repertoire and sort of uh, got real familiar with uh, a lot of the old blues stuff, uh, just playing it like that. And also I kind of built up my following there in Melbourne, met most of the musicians around town just from being 
out there playing like that and then uh gradually kind of got a few shows and uh, like i said you know things have turned around now where so you came uh, indoors gradually that's the idea got indoors and i, I guess that's back home it's partly owing to myself that it, that it's uh, popular but uh, like i said also these are uh, there's plenty of uh, famous international bands who are kind of claiming those in- influences now and uh, what do you yeah. what quality did, is it in that music from particularly that time, late twenties, early thirties, and it's quite a quite a narrow period of time, really. What quality is it in that music that speaks to you now? Uh, that speaks to me now. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. At the beginning, uh, I got into it because uh, because after I left high school, I, was, uh, I, I just wanted to play music. Pretty much, everyone else I knew went to something else went overseas or went to school or got jobs or something and uh so i was kind of playing around playing the guitar and uh, i met up with some people who sort of said let's play this sort of music i'd been listening to it for quite a few years but not actually really thinking about doing anything with it but uh i guess then as i played that over the course of a couple of years with uh, some bands who weren't very good uh I just uh, I, I found a guitar style real interesting of that early stuff. You know, there's all these uh, good guitar players. There's the uh, sort of East Coast sort of uh, ragtime sort of pickers, Blind Blake and uh, Blind Boy Fuller and stuff like this. And there was all the, the sort of Delta Blues. And it was just a real kind of uh, complex sort of uh, guitar style and also the singing, you know, and there's nothing really not to like about it. It's... Uh, and also the, the, it's, uh, the complex, it's emotional, it's all everything, and it's all one guy does it, which uh, was the most appealing thing to me. It's also the sound of the recording; it makes you feel kind of a nostalgia for a, 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 something you never actually experienced first time yeah. around. It's very strange, yeah, I don't magical know. sound. It is. It does sound pretty magic, but by the same token, also I was just like you know, I'd listen to recordings and and try and hear through that, uh, you know, the the the. the husk of that sort of technology or whatever that sound is that's on there and actually just like put myself in the room with the guy and just think you know there's nobody around who delivers with this much power as a guy with a guitar around today like if this fellow was put on a stage somewhere he'd annihilate pretty much anyone who's around and so it sort of got to be one of my uh, things was to try and get something like that because a lot of these guys were playing for dancing weren't they they you know they were yeah. they were having to turn up and command quite a noisy room weren't yeah, they yeah and just so you know such command of the instrument and their voice and and when they went to record they turned up once every five years or whatever to unload didn't they they weren't spending weeks in the studio getting it right yeah well i don't think they were making too much money off records back then maybe, <laughs> no. so, uh, probably more than they are now actually <laughs> i love i love the the, uh, the lyrics uh, they're so you know the the images you use are so fantastically uh, evocative in fact the song just you just play this with bird eating spiders as big as your fist and snakes that hang down from the vine you know yeah. so when you write songs are you trying to because if you are at succeed transport people to a kind of magical place to take them out of the borderline in the, in the uh, in Charing Cross Road I, I guess so I, I, uh, I just have a uh, my natural inclination is a very visual type of thing so uh uh, I get that with my lyrics, you know, and I'll start writing a tune. It will just turn into a story whether I want it to or not, pretty much. And uh, 
I guess in the way I produce my records as well, I uh, I do that a lot. You listen to them and you can hear the sound effects on there. And I pretty much, I usually have a very visual sort of uh, soundtrack, I guess, that goes with the song. So when I come to making a record, I'm, mm. it really helps me in that way because I know the space that each bit of the song is meant to... What well, it looks like. Because so, you're going to play a, a, another song in a moment. Just give us some clues as to, to what the song's about. And I have to say at this point, C.W. Stone King has just got off a 23-hour flight <laughs> from Melbourne. This is uh, probably had no sleep at all in the Singapore stopover. So this is a sensational uh, somnambulistic performance, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> probably suits. Yeah, absolutely. So, what, what, what are you gonna, what are you gonna, what are you, what are you gonna play us out with? Well, uh, let me see. I'll play one off the Jungle Blues record again. At, uh, I might play this one, which is a yodeling song, which I made up. I, uh, I've always been <laughs> a big, big fan of Jimmy Rogers, the, yes, the uh, hillbilly singer. Actually, probably uh, when I look at it, I probably uh, would put myself most in his basket in terms of what I do. He was a real blender of different styles. He uh, he uh, he covered lots of bases. He did real sentimental stuff. He he had the the the, uh, the blues thing in there. The uh, all different stuff and really uh, made his own style out of it. So uh, I made this song kind of thinking about his sort of yodeling style again. I'm never really class myself as too much of a yodeler. <laughs> uh, well, let us be the judge of that. <laughs> but, uh, we'll see how we go with it. Uh, this tune is a song called Talking Lion Blues. I uh, woke up one morning and I uh, uh, sitting around in my underwear. Well, I wasn't really sitting around. I just kind of picked up the guitar when I hopped out of bed and uh, and just uh, sang this tune pretty much, like about 11 or 12 verses of it. Just uh, kind of got to the end and thought, holy shit, that was, that's, that's a good one. And I wrote down as much of it as I could remember and kind of put the verses in the right order. And I, I just liked the story of it. Uh, it's called Talking Line Blues. Thank you. 
first place I took him was ten miles away. Oh, ten miles away. Told the people, listen what this lion can say. Holy, what this lion can say. The lion looked round, he started to cry. Oh, he started to cry. Said this man punched me and he blackened my eye. Oh, yeah, and he blackened my eye. The people got angry, they started to shout. Oh, oh, yeah. I said that's what I was talking about. Oh, yeah. In the old wicked chair, old lady in the old wicked chair. The monkey said guilty, and the people all cheered. Oh, them people all cheered. He slammed his gavel, said twenty-five years, old lady said twenty-five years. Talking line again, holy, they're talking line again. C.W. Stone King uh, singing Talking Lion Blues from his record Jungle Blues. He can, uh, he can sing, can't he? He really can sing. He's remarkable. You know, when you sit opposite these people, as we do in this tiny little pod, very, very near. And it to can't people. be easy. And well, I suppose that's what musicians are made of. I guess so, you know, yeah. that, that's that's what they want to do. Yeah. You know, they want to be listened to, whether it's three thousand people or three of us. You know, as, as was the case yesterday. Um, but he's got a genuine musical personality. Hasn't Absolutely, he? yeah. You know, there's, a, there's a genuine voice there, and he knows how to use the microphone as well, with the backing away and all that kind of stuff, yes. moving slightly yeah. off centre when he needs a different effect. I, I do think a certain amount of this may be Australian. Uh, because well, in my experience, Australian and New Zealand acts are natural, not so much showmen, but they're just they're perfectly at ease with busking, with doing PAs, right. all that kind of thing. Because I think that's just the culture. Yeah, they come from that, you know, that that thing where it's kind of is the guitar singing as a song. Um, they're not as standoffish as British no, groups. No, uh, they, they tend not to be as much about image or whatever. Although you know, 
well, CW7 then, then, King Images. Yeah, pretty, but they're not playing developed. their fourth gig at the Calvin, Camden Falcon in front of half the music industry and six journalists. And, and, you know, they're, they're just, there's just a kind of Australian ease yeah. about, uh, that comes over, anyway. Uh, he's here until until the 12th of September. Uh, he's playing the, the Brixton Windmill on Friday night, which is probably tonight if you're hearing this, this podcast. Uh, early on, uh, he's doing the Charlotte Street Blues on on the thirtieth. Uh, then he's Liverpool thirty first, Birmingham uh, the first, Glasgow the second, Brighton the sixth, Nottingham the seventh, Bristol Thekler playing playing in a in a boat in, uh, in uh, Bristol Harbour uh, on September the eighth, Canterbury Farmhouse on the September the ninth, and the end of the Road Festival the tenth, and the Alawite Festival on the on the eleventh, and the Thames Festival in London on the twelfth. And, uh, you know, do go and see him. Absolutely, yeah. You, you went to see the showcase. Fantastic. Spellbinding. Absolutely. I, I missed it because I was, I was away in my Tuscan villa. <laughs> I haven't got a Tuscan villa, OK? It's just a joke. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. The story that you've read again and again over the last few years is that the record business may be going to hell in a handcart, but it doesn't matter because the live business is more than making up for any deficit. And so people may not be buying CDs, but they're paying more and more money to go and see more and more live concerts. Well, this summer in the United States, we saw the first sign that this may not be continuing to go on its merry way the way it has been. And there's a piece in the current issue of Word, uh, written by live business watcher James Drury, uh, answering some of our questions about what this might mean to the price of tickets or the availability of tickets or the kind of gigs that we're likely to see in the future in the UK. And uh, the big headline cases in the States have been Christina Aguilera and uh, Bon Jovi and Limp Biscuit. All these people have either had to pull out of or downgrade or retreat from huge concert plans because the market simply wasn't there in the way that it had been the year before and the year before that. And so we started off by asking James whether there was any indication that the same thing might be starting to happen in Britain. Yes, the market has softened here as well a little. Um, promoters have been telling me that people have been buying tickets later or that they're going to uh, two shows a month instead of two shows a week. Um, it's not certainly not at the top end, not the really high-demand acts or those acts which only come once every three, four years. Um, it's more the acts which tour regularly, maybe twice a year or certainly once a year, the really established heritage acts which have been touring for 20 years maybe and come around every year. If people know that they're definitely going to come back next year, they might not buy that ticket this year and choose to go to something they haven't seen instead. So, but, but you seem to have saying that the really big acts, I don't know, what are we talking about, Madonna and U2 and Lady yes, Gaga? Yes, the likes of U2 and Lady Gaga and so on. They're not affected? No, not at all. Um, today I was just hearing that um, a show by Interpol even, um, the tickets have gone out in uh, just, uh, just over an hour um, and it just shows that when you've got a hot act in the right venue, the tickets will fly. Really? Yeah. So, but, but they're not necessarily household names. It's just a question of the right act, knowing the right venue and, and not having toured too recently. Yes, that's the key thing. Um, with record sales falling, artists are wanting to tour more so they can make more money um, to make up for that lost revenue. But then you stray into that area of um, touring too often and then your ticket sales start dropping off. Right, um, right. It's a fine balancing game. What's the relationship between this and... 
ticket prices, you know, it seems to me that for about 10 years, ticket prices were just going up and up and yep. up as if, as if the promoters were just thinking, or whoever was thinking, oh, well, I'll try another five pounds on it. It's not going to make any difference. And uh, this seems to have come apart recently, does it? Well, I think um, ticket sales have certainly levelled off now in terms of prices. They were going up and up and up, um, and people were prepared to pay them. I, I know um, plenty of promoters who will argue, look at the price of a ticket to a Premiership football match. Um, they've been doing very similar things, and they've been going through the roof and are vastly more expensive than a concert ticket now. Um, uh, but... Um, I think people have realised that there is a certain amount of price sensitivity in the market now and I think we're finding a levelling off of ticket prices. I mean, of course, I guess one does make hay while the sun shines, I suppose. Um, so everybody's been pointing to football, haven't they? I, I actually heard during the test match recently that the chap running the Oval um, and they were talking about they had poor attendances at the Oval at a test match, which is rare in Britain. And they're saying, well, you know, £50, we, we reckon it's pretty much like the Premiership, you know. And, of course, the Premiership's different because you have a relationship with a football team. You don't have the same relationship with a one-off sporting event or an act in well, the same way. You know, you can't... They always compare it to the, the thing that it, it shouldn't be compared with, really. Oh, no, I think that's unfair. I think um, you certainly have a very personal relationship with an act. Um, if you're a fan of, of a certain band, you... you you're on their website, you're finding out all the latest news about them, and you feel like you have that personal interaction with them in the same way that you feel like you have with a football team. Um, I haven't had a personal relationship with Ian Botham, but um, right. uh, uh, certainly with, with acts that you're a fan of, I think you really do have that real engagement, that very personal engagement. You feel so how like. much would you pay to go and see somebody? Um, yeah, it depends who it was. Well, um, who's your favourite? Um, if it was... what. Well, the Beatles reformed. Oh, well, well, that's like the Premiership. That's never going to happen, you know. Who's a, who's, a, who's a kind of average act that you like? If I'd say, let's say Vampire Weekend, for example. Okay, how much would you pay um, for Vampire Weekend? I'd pay thirty pounds to go and see them. But you wouldn't pay no. fifty. No, no. But increasingly, a lot of people seem to be charging fifty. That seems to be what what happened. Um, yes, I mean, it just depends what the market can bear, I think. Um, I personally wouldn't pay £50 to go and see Vampire Weekend, but um, I'm sure there's plenty of people that would, and probably more. Um, at the same time, you know, you've got to get that pricing right. Um, as I say in the article, um, choosing the ticket price is an extremely non-scientific yes. uh, method. It's, um, it's a it's general... Stick your finger in the air, isn't it? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Um, you, you have a chat it's with... what did everybody else charge? Yeah. You look Presumably at Presumably that's one of the things they're doing, and thinking, well, Oasis got away with so much or whatever, we ought to be able to do this. Yeah, and that's, that's about right. I mean, there's a little bit more intelligence in it um, to do with costs and, and how much it costs to get the tour on the road and promotional costs and so on. But essentially, that's a guide point that one that you jump from and you look at what somebody who's similar to you is charged in a similar right. venue and take that as your starting point. So it's acts needing to replace uh, record royalty income because yep. it's not there anymore, uh, finding an increasingly large live audience that appeared to be you know, not terribly bothered about price... And, and everybody kept on making hay until it started to go slightly wrong. Yeah. And now they're retreating from that. Now, the other element in this that has occurred in the last five years is what, is what, I, what euphemistically call secondary ticketing and, you know, people yeah. selling tickets on eBay and all this sort of stuff. Now, this has also had an inflationary effect, hasn't it? Could you explain that? Um, yes, what's happened is... Um 
when live music was was booming, um, the so-called secondary ticketing uh, companies came in, uh, the the fan-to-fan exchange sites, as they're known, or, or um, and so on, which basically allow people to resell tickets that they've got. Um, ostensibly, it appears that it's for people who have bought four tickets and suddenly find that they can't go because something terrible has happened or something they've just they just don't want to go any longer and they want to get rid of their tickets because ticket companies don't really allow you to refund them um, because of touts traditionally um, it eliminates any risk for the tout if you can refund a ticket right up to the point of the show oh, right. um, so the secondary ticketing sites have, have come in and enabled people to buy more tickets than they need sell too off at vastly inflated prices for example to cover the cost of their own or it's just brought the professional touts under, uh, into the warm as it were um, on, and online um, and you hear about staggering, you know, efforts by professional touting organisations to, via computer jiggery pokery, they they can kind of they can they can buy these things far quicker than the public can. Is that is that the case? Yeah, there's there's very complicated computer programs that I don't understand, um, which will go out there and um, stamp up as many of the tickets as they possibly can, um, you know, uh, loads of tickets from the front row and so on, so that they can really make a profit out of them. Now, I know the ticketing companies do their utmost to try and prevent this um, through their own countermeasures, but um, I'm sure there's lots of different ways of getting around. Because I read about some survey that was done a few years ago by some academic in the States who was looking into the, into this, where he took a block of seats at a Bruce Springsteen concert, and he went around and the, he, he worked out what the, what the face value of the tickets was that people had paid in that block. Then he went and asked everybody in the block what they'd paid. And, of course, they paid a third more mm. in most cases. Now, this is an interesting um, uh, component of this argument, isn't it, that... Um, that if, if, if an act is getting paid £35 for a, for a seat, but that seat is going for £60, they think, my ticket should be more expensive. Yes, um, they do. Um, and that's why I think there's been a certain amount of interest from artists in whether they can participate in that secondary revenue. Um, I know, I mean, it's a, real, it's a real divisive argument, this one. Some acts absolutely abhor it and will not have anything to do with it. Others um, understand that if there's a market out there for it, then it's another revenue stream for them. Um, Is there anybody who's come out and confessed that? Uh, Madonna did a deal with Viagogo for her uh, Sweet and Sticky tour. Um, she, they were her official... Um, official secondary ticketing partner, as it were. So, so basically, if they were touting the tickets, she got part of it. Yeah, I think the deal was uh, a bit more straightforward than that. I think they just paid her a uh, a flat fee in order to be the in secondary ticketing yeah. partner. But it, it amounts to the same thing. It does. And you, you sort of, in a terrible way, you can see their point, can't you? Yeah. You know, I'm getting a hundred thousand dollars for this house. Well, this house has paid two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Why shouldn't I get a lot of it? Yeah. Um, so it's just driven it up. Yeah, you can understand it. Um, I don't personally agree with it because I think it takes, I think it makes tickets unaffordable for those people. Well, it does. Yes, and, it. yeah, that's undoubtedly the result, isn't it? And also the fact that the people are so desperately keen to get tickets that they'll pay inflated sums for them. Yeah. Well, that inflates them for everybody else, doesn't it? And it takes money out of the market if you want to go and see two shows, but you've had to pay twice what it would normally cost to go and see one act. You won't go and see the other act. Yeah, and yeah, no, no, sure, that definitely has an effect, doesn't it? So that. I think people often have an idea of the music business that it, that over here we have artists who who you know don't think about vulgar things like money, <laughs> and, and over here we have kind of cigar smoking chaps in suits who think about nothing but money. But you know the artists 
are setting their value, aren't they, in this market? They're going out there and saying, we won't tour unless we get this much money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which has a direct effect on the ticket. Yes, it does. Right. Um, the artist, through their representatives, um, usually, although sh- they do get consulted, of course, because you can't make the decisions on their behalf all the time. Um, but, yeah, in, um, through their representatives, management and so on, they decide how much they need to make to cover the costs of their tour, make a bit of money for going forwards um, to carry on building the act. I mean, at the end of the day, an artist is a business um, and um, it, needs to, it needs to be profitable, it needs to make enough money to continue to sustain itself and to build and to cover the costs of all its other um, activities. And so, yes, it does need to make a certain amount of money from, from live, uh, not just to cover its costs, but to move forward. And that does impact the ticket price because that's how much they need to charge each promoter who also needs to cover their own costs as well as make a bit of money for ongoing. Because um, yeah. the, the picture I get from lots of stuff I read is that the promoters are actually increasingly having to make their money out of selling beer at inflated prices, charging you a lot of money to park and so forth, because most of the money you pay for the ticket is going to the artist. Yeah, that's true. Um, the artist will demand a... Um, there's a, a fee, a guaranteed fee, um, and then a lot of the deals um, are have a, a split of the tickets after break-even has been reached. Um, that can be up to, and even more than, 95% to the artist, 5% to the promoter. So once the event has broken even... Um, and the artist has had their guarantee, then any extra money after that, there's a split that goes between the artist and the promoter. Um, but it's all these additional things that you're getting charged for because people are needed to, to make money out of them. Yeah, I mean, to be fair to the promoters, um, the cost of putting on a gig these days um, has really risen. Um, health and safety legislation and all kinds of other things. You know, It's about keeping fans safe at events. Um, and the costs of security and um, infrastructure and all kinds of things like that has really gone up, um, not to mention things like diesel and all kinds of other things that you need um, have really risen. And that contributes as well to, um, to how much it costs the promoter to stage the show. And that impacts the ticket price as to things like VAT, which is going to go up in January. And um, there's a charge from PRS for Music, which um, compensates the songwriter. um, And they're currently consulting on that fee at the moment as to whether it's fair or not. It's looking like it's probably going to go up, which again will impact the fee. Right, right. So there's no sign it's going to get cheaper anytime soon. um, No, I think there's... Certainly from what promoters are telling me, there's real effort to try and keep costs, um, uh, to try and keep ticket prices at least where they are now um, uh, as much as possible because they know that fans just won't, just can't really afford to see any further increases in ticket prices. Mm. Um, I know they're battling the PRS against any any attempt to raise that fee. Um, So while this is happening... Are festivals continued, continuing to do very well? Yes, festivals seem to have had, um, so far, a very good season. Um, I think the good weather has obviously helped. Um, not included today with the four I'm just drying off. Um, but, uh, yeah, the festivals seem to be doing very well still. Um, I think public appetite for the outdoor event um, continues to grow. Um, and... Festival promoters have started to, in the last few years, have really started to target new markets, um, such as the classical music market um, or perhaps older generations of people who 
would have gone to festivals when they were younger and now their kids have grown up or gone to university um, want to either relive their youth or, or still want to go to festivals and enjoy them as they did in the past, but they don't necessarily want to slum it like the kids do. So there's slightly more upmarket accommodation and better food, that kind of thing. Right. And you're bringing people, you're bringing, you're extending the audience. And so, so it's now a mainstream part of the entertainment you know, summer, isn't it? Absolutely. In fact, it's, it's even not. A, it's not the alternative anymore. It's absolutely the mainstream. Absolutely. And some people even view going to festivals um, as part of their holiday calendar. Um, right. It's not just in the UK, um, but going abroad and making a holiday of going to a European festivals, for example taking a week off, go to the festival and just spend a bit more time in the city. What do you envisage is going to happen in the near future? Are there any, are there any barriers that the live business is about to break through? Um, or is it just going to keep on getting bigger? <laughs> well, the live business has always been cyclical um, in terms of public uh, popularity of going to concerts. Um, there was a massive dip um, when dance music became uh, in the ascendancy and I wonder if that might be starting to happen again now. Um, we're certainly seeing more and more electronic acts becoming mainstream. You know, genres like dubstep are now getting their own best-of compilations, whereas previously they were quite underground. Um, and and that's not a headline at Glastonbury. That's not really a headline at Glastonbury. Um, the thing is, though, the good thing is that these electronic acts generally have a, a live element to them, and so I don't think you'll see venues being turned into nightclubs um, in great swathes as they were in the past. Um, but that, that certainly could be a challenge. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that one pans out. Concert business watcher James Drury and some interesting speculations about what might be happening in the live business in the near future. That's about it from the Work Podcast for this week. Any other business, Fraser? Uh, I can't tell you. It's a secret. Oh, but all on. I can say is keep November the 4th free. Would that be for a live event? It might be for a live event in London. So, November the 4th, so, you know, put a big star in your diary if that's what you do. Uh, coming up, up on the podcast in the near future, over the next few weeks, special guest, we've got Phil Jupiters is coming in. Very nice. Uh, and also Devon Sproul is going to be coming in to perform and to talk, and, uh, and that's not all. There'll be, uh, there'll be more of that, so uh, watch this space. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.